She is really committed to making economics work for everyone, including those who are at a disadvantage, whether they are people of color, women, people who started life at a disadvantage. Her feeling is that the strongest economy is one where everyone has a chance to succeed and be fulfilled. This is Money Conscious from Millstone Evans Group. I'm your host, Sasha Millstone. Join me as we discuss investing, financial planning, and life. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com and thanks for joining us. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ellen Allman, author of Empathy Economics, Janet Yellen's Remarkable Rise to Power and Her Drive to Spread Prosperity to All. I'm really looking forward to exploring Janet Yellen's career with you. She's an advocate for financial equity, and until I read your book, I didn't realize how strong an advocate she is, and so it'll be exciting to discuss that with you. But I've long been an admirer of hers, and I share her passion for economic equality and justice. The book is wonderful. It brings to light the origins and trajectory of Yellen's career and what factors contributed to her success beyond her native intelligence and persistence. Her deep values that you explore of equity and inclusion seem to have informed every aspect of her working life. I'm happy to have Owen here with me today. Here's a little about his very impressive career before we dive into our discussion. We'll be sure to share a link to Owen's book in the show notes, episode promotions, and the email that we send to clients. Owen Allman has had a five-decade career in journalism. He is prolific. Most recently, he has held senior management and editorial positions at USA Today. Prior to USA Today, he spent six years at Business Week magazine, where he managed the Washington Bureau as a senior news editor. From 1983 to 1993, he worked in the Bureau of Night Ritter newspapers covering economics, the White House, and the State Department. Owen won two awards from the White House Correspondents Association for his coverage of the Reagan presidency. Owen worked for the Associated Press as chief economics correspondent in Washington. He currently serves as executive editor and Washington columnist for the International Economy, which is a quarterly magazine written for central bankers, finance ministers, and academics. He previously wrote a critically acclaimed biography of David Stockman, President Ronald Reagan's budget director. Owen, welcome. Your book is so good, so thorough, and so down-to-earth. The research is tremendous. (laughs) Thanks so much. I really appreciate that, Sasha. How long did it take you to write? Uh, Probably from beginning to end, uh, about a year. I really worked pretty hard on it. Of course, my Stockman book took four months, so this was like a labor of love by comparison. Uh, But uh, my publisher was very eager to uh, get it in print while Janet Yellen was still in office, so I, I rushed through pretty well. But You know, I've known her for 30 years, and so I had a lot of background information on her already and and knew a lot of friends and associates, so that made it 
a lot easier. And actually, I, I did most of the research during the COVID pandemic when everyone was stuck at home. So I was able to reach all these very important people who normally, you know, would be who knows where in their offices or flying around the world and everyone was stuck home. So it actually was a very good time to research a book. That makes a lot of sense. What inspired you to write the book in the first place? Well, you know, I, I've known, as I said, I've known Janet Yellen for, for many, many years. And as you mentioned in my biography, I've covered Washington movers and shakers for over four decades. And she has struck me as a truly unique member of the Washington, let's say, power broker community in that she is an unusually decent, caring, fun person. Obviously, she has an ego, but she doesn't have an outsized ego. She's just a delight. If you had her over for dinner, you would really, really enjoy her company. She's just so down to earth for someone who has been so accomplished. So that's on the personality level. And then in terms of her accomplishments, she really, is, as you said before, is really committed to making economics work for everyone, including those who are at a disadvantage, whether they are people of color, women, people who started life at a disadvantage. Her feeling is that the strongest economy is one where everyone has a chance to succeed and be fulfilled. And everything she's done has moved in that direction. In fact, I, I was just reading some press releases from the Treasury Department over the last few weeks. And they've talked about all these initiatives that were started by Yellen, including sort of doing an inventory on how how are Native Americans doing in the economy? How are Blacks doing in the economy? How are women doing in the economy? To not only give lip service to the, the belief in having a, a, an economy that works for everyone, but actually measuring just, you know, how they are doing and, and where the gaps are. So, you know, that's something very, very unusual, if, if not unprecedented, for the Treasury Department. Yeah, I was going to say, now that is uh, something that you would not expect somebody in her position to be doing, but it's so heartening to hear that she's that caring, and it means so much to her that the policy recommendation really help individuals. Absolutely, and I think everything that they've done, she's looked through the prism of how does this affect you know the broadest segment of American society. And is it, you know, a sound program that helps everyone make sure that you don't have, you know, some spending program or some lending program that really helps those who, who don't need it as much? You know, she's clearly a capitalist. I mean, she's, you know, I don't want to leave the impression that, oh, she's some, you know, left-wing socialist. I would actually say that on the political spectrum, on the economic spectrum, she's left of center, but I would not consider her to be some raving, 
you know, economic socialist or communist by any stretch of the imagination. She really believes in, in the free market and opportunity. But she also understands that a, a strong economy and, frankly, a strong country depends on everyone feeling that they have kind of a seat at the table and have a chance to succeed. And she even mentioned to me during one of our many, many interviews, you know, she worries that a lot of the division we've seen and the anti-democratic opposition and a lot of the, the people who've supported Donald Trump are expressing frustration with the fact that they don't think the economy has worked for them over the last generation. And it is true that we have had a, a widening inequality gap in wages and in wealth, greater actually, the, the degree of inequality has accelerated faster in the United States than virtually any other developed country on earth. And I don't think we want to go back to the, you know, the Gilded Age at the turn of the, the 20th century or, or even to uh, the Roaring Twenties when there is so much wealth and poverty at the same time. And she feels that a stable democracy depends on an economy that works for all. I mean, I would say that's a very important piece of the entire puzzle and I found the stories that you told in the book about how she intertwined economic theory with consideration of the impact of different policy choices on the lives of everyday people, very fascinating. And so when she told you that, did she talk at all or sometime subsequently about anything she's doing differently or discussions that she's having or how she's going to work with that from a policy perspective, work with those concerns? Well, you know, early on, she was a supporter of this very large stimulus plan that Biden had proposed and got passed, $1.9 trillion, that she felt would provide a lot of support for people who were stuck without jobs at the beginning of the pandemic. And she was very mindful of the fact that during the Obama administration, when he came in and was trying to help the country heal from the Great Recession and the housing crunch in 2007 to 2009, that the aid package that they passed was too small. And it never really helped enough people to come back from you know tough times. And there's a lot of anger, and by the way, a lot of, I think, the, what we're seeing now is still people who feel that the bankers who caused all the problems came out on top and left, you know, all these poor people, you know, stuck with losing their houses and, and jobs. So she, and, and as a result of the small stimulus plan, the economy did not grow as fast as they would have liked. So she wanted to make sure that the program really was large. Now, she had privately concerns that maybe the stimulus could actually stoke inflation. And she was right that it did have inflationary properties. But she still felt that it was better to err on the side of doing more than less to help people. And I do think there are a number of statistics mentioned that I think show how the policy has been a success. 
again, as a caveat, noting that, yes, inflation went up, it's coming back down. I think a lot of it was caused by the dislocations of the the COVID pandemic that caused supply to collapse. Uh, And then when demand came up, they couldn't get supply going fast enough and prices went up. But a few things have happened during her tenure so far. One of them is that the inequality gap has actually narrowed a little bit in the last couple of years. And the main reason for that is because of very low unemployment and the need for low-income workers and jobs that where they can't work remotely. There's been a big increase in wages for low-income people. In fact, they have actually done very well compared to inflation. As a percent of their income, they've done better than any other income group. And she takes a lot of satisfaction in that. And you could see that if you look at, you know, minimum wages and you see ads for, you know, like fast food companies that used to pay, you know, seven, eight, nine dollars an hour are paying 15 to 20 or more. 17 sometimes. Yeah. So she feels very good about that, that she's helping people do better economically. But there's still, you know, huge problems out there that have to be addressed. You know, um, there have been recent stories saying how working couples can't afford daycare because of a shortage of quality daycare. And that's put a real strain on them. And of course, if you think about it, if you have young children, often one parent is going to have to stay at home or work part-time. And that hurts the family income because they can't get daycare. And that's something she's cared about too. The U.S., is the only developed country in the world that does not have government guaranteed and subsidized daycare across the board. Think about that. And that is one of the biggest factors that is hurting uh, both single parents and, and married couples that desperately need daycare. And that's the cause of both poverty and lower income. And that's something also that she has fought for. But, you know, there's no indication that Congress is going to approve it anytime soon. Well, I thought your quote was interesting. You quote one of her colleagues saying, Janet can disagree with you in the most agreeable way imaginable, that she's honest and frank intellectually. I I just... Some of the scenes in the book where you described who was around the table and the things that she was saying and that often she would have one person in the room that was really her advocate in her opinions. I mean, talk a little bit more about that because even though she has sometimes been a lone voice and coming from a very different direction, she certainly has had tremendous success getting her policy way. Right. To give you a little background on that, remember, you know, as a female economist, she's pretty rare in that profession as a woman going back to, uh, you know, she's 76. Actually, I think she might have just turned 77. So she, she grew up at a time when men dominated the field. And she had to put on a thick skin and put her head down and really work hard to, you know, be heard at the table, so to speak, on economics. Now, she was very, very bright. But, you know, even in high school, where she grew up in Brooklyn at the time, this was in the early 60s, 
they had high schools for gifted boys, but not girls. If you can imagine that, you know, they, they changed that some years later, but she didn't have a chance to go to one of those gifted schools, but it, it helped because in her public school where she stayed with all the smart boys gone, the girls dominated because all the smart girls ran everything, all the, you know, they were tops in their classes. They ran all the, the extracurricular activities and it gave them a lot of self-esteem. And then the same thing in college where she went to Brown and then she went to uh, Yale uh, for graduate school. And again, she often was, you know, in a minority and she just learned to find companions who would support each other. You know, there, there's a technique among women I'm sure you know about when they are kind of like in, in a minority and let's say a, a meeting situation and there's like two or three women and like 15 men who dominate and a woman will suggest something and be ignored. And then like five, 10 minutes later, the man will mention the same idea and everyone says, wow, what a great idea. Why didn't we think of that before? So to avoid that, they would agree in advance that, you know, I'll, I'll speak up for you. So like, if you have an idea, I'll say right away, wow, what a great idea. We should consider that and make sure, you know, her voice is heard. And so she got used to doing that during her entire career. And of course, in later years, as she moved up, you know, the ladder to the more prominent positions, it became much more common to have women in, in major economics jobs. But I can tell you, you know, one anecdote you want to hear about where she felt she was not, let's say she was reluctant to speak out. This goes back in the 1990s in, in the Clinton administration. And uh, there was this growing concern about the stock market, all the investors on Wall Street creating these exotic instruments, you know, various derivatives and debt obligation swaps and, and all kinds of very arcane investment instruments that were supposed to be guaranteed to be profitable, but guaranteed against any major loss. And a, a woman who headed the Commodity uh, Products Trading Commission Brooksley Bourne warned that they should be regulated to make sure there wasn't, you know, some collapse of, of this sector because I think there's several trillion dollars worth of these investments. And her proposal to regulate them produced this huge negative backlash from other male regulators, including then Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan from Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, his deputy at Treasury, Warren Summers, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, who is Arthur Levitt. They said, oh, this would be terrible. We regulated it. It would, it would cause the loss of the industry. They would all move to London and we'd lose all this revenue. And not only did they say it was a bad idea, but they attacked Brooksley born as if she was this, you know, stupid, awful, horrible woman. I mean, in, in the crudest personal terms. And, you know, Yellen would be at some of these meetings, and she was at the time the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, and she didn't feel that she had the same stature and it wasn't an area where she had expertise. So she kind of bought 
the argument of, of the men who said it was a bad idea, but she was greatly offended by how they treated Brooks Reborn. So she sat silent while they attacked her. And of course, they never went ahead with any regulation. And then we had the housing crash that was caused by the collapse of these very derivative instruments that she had warned about you know, 10 years later. And Janet felt really, really bad about that, you know, that she hadn't come to her defense at the time. And it was kind of an important lesson for her that uh, you need to, to really speak up more and make sure you're, you know, you're not cowed by these aggressive alpha males. So she, years later, I was going to say she ran into Brooksley Bourne at a, Thing at a supermarket, they were shopping. They lived in the same neighborhood, and uh, she went up to her and told her how much she admired her and and how, how much she regretted not coming to her defense at the time. Well, you wrote at length a bit in your book about what it was like with President Clinton and the what you call the old boys environment of the Clinton White House. So was that connected? to the story that you just told. Do you want to talk a little bit about that environment sure. and how Yellen right. handled that? So, you know, it's interesting, even though Clinton had a, a very modern wife who was, you know, an equal partner in many ways, Hillary Clinton, she was hardly a shrinking violet or a traditional housewife. Nonetheless, people he brought into the administration tended to be, you know, kind of backslappers, locker room guys, told a lot of jokes, and they kind of, you know, excluded the women in a sense. And there were a lot of women in, in the Clinton administration. I mean, he did, he did a very good job bringing women in, but on a social level of meetings, it kind of they felt like they were on the outs. And they often talked about how, you know, they would be shouted down or they would be, you know, treated kind of rudely and that it was a real problem. And so they would sort of formed a, a bit of a sisterhood where they would get together and figure out how they could, you know, make a case in concert to, to have a more powerful voice. But it was, you know, very frustrating day in and day out to, to deal with a lot of these, these guys. Now, I, I should mention that it's not unique to the Clinton administration, I mean, it's pretty common that you know, the men who make it to the White House are pretty aggressive, even though there are a lot of women. And I haven't checked the Biden White House, but it's fair to say that the majority of staff remains male and uh, can be tough for a lot of women, you know, even on a personality level where, you know, men will, will try so hard to, you know, one up one another and studies have shown that, you know, women are more inclined to use their powers of persuasion to forge, you know, coalitions, consensus, you know, compromise and, and to be more reasonable. And uh, in the White House, there's a lot of sharp elbows. So uh, that was kind of a, you know, learning experience for her. And I should add that, you know, one thing that I do, like most about her is that she hates politics. Now, of course, she's in she's in a very political job, but by what I mean by hating politics is that 
to her, the game is where the goal is to come up with good, sound policy and not shape it based on what you think the political reaction will be. In other words, if it's good, you should go ahead and pursue it and not let political implications, you know, change what you do. Now, you have to be, of course, practical and, and you know, there's some things that may be non-starters. And so you have to accept that. But for the most part, as she likes to say, I don't do politics well. And she did confide to me a number of times, you know, after I wrote the book about, you know, we'd get together and, and have lunch and she would tell me that she said, oh, I, I think, I don't think the people in the White House like me. And I said, why do you say that? You're so likable. She says, well, because, you know, I'm always proposing things that they think are bad politics. And I'm looking at it, you know, as what, what do I think is good policy? So, for instance, like she argued at one time that they should lift some of the tariffs on China that had been imposed by President Trump. Well, the White House considered that a non-starter because they felt politically it would look really bad. They didn't care that she made a strong argument for why it would be good economic policy and actually help bring down inflation. They just were worried about the appearance. So that was one example. Another example is she negotiated against all odds an international agreement to set a minimum corporate tax around the world involving 135 nations, which was a huge accomplishment. Something like that had not been done for over 100 years. Now, the reason she did that was because this would prevent countries from having really very low tax rates to attract corporations to locate there. So the argument was, if we all agree to a minimum, then we can all benefit from, you know, corporations will locate wherever they think makes sense from a geographical position and not from, you know, a host country that's giving them a big tax break. Well, when she embarked on this, the White House said, no, 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 don't do it. And she said, why? And they didn't say because it was a bad idea. They said, well, because you'll fail and they'll make you and us look bad. And she went ahead and did it anyhow, and she succeeded. Now, they did reach the deal. Of course, it requires all these countries, parliaments, and congresses to ratify the agreement, and that's another thing outside her ability to handle. But it's a real testament to her you know, fortitude to go ahead and do this. She ran into the same reaction from the White House when she proposed that they set a uh, cap on Russian oil to prevent Russia from making huge profits from high oil prices to finance its war against Ukraine. And again, the White House was reluctant for her to go and pursue that because they didn't think it would succeed, but she pulled it off. And major countries have come up with I think an oil cap around $60 a barrel, which has been largely enforced. I know Russia has found ways around it through, you know, black market, but it still has had a noticeable impact on reducing Russia's revenue. And they're talking again about lowering that cap even more. So that's another big accomplishment of hers.
that she was deterred from doing at the White House. Well, I found it interesting, Owen, that, you know, throughout your book, you talked about people that you interviewed, many of them men, gave her extremely high praise, many of them very well-known, high-level men. And they talked about how her communication style is very, very effective. You know, very few people have had the impact that she's had on the American economy. So something that she's doing has worked very, very well. So I'm wondering, you know, you've talked about some challenges where the White House didn't think she could win and she did win. What does she consider her greatest accomplishments, do you think? That's a really, it's a very good question. You know, I haven't asked her lately about that. I think she would say that over the last year, the administration, with her help, has created the strongest labor market in history. When you measure it based on not just the unemployment rate, but how much wages have gone up and the participation, and as I said, that low-income workers are doing better It's a very, very strong labor market. And there's really been nothing overall as strong as as this market going, the labor market going back probably to the end of World War II. And I think she feels a lot of satisfaction about that. You know, I mentioned that her, her empathy, which is in the title, you know, where did her empathy come from? Well, her father was a family doctor in Brooklyn. And, you know, after the World War II, he treated a lot of patients and they came to his house where he had his office and she as a child saw these people. And a lot of them had lost their jobs or were struggling with low income jobs. And she saw the pain on their faces and how they struggled to to survive with their families. In addition to that, having all these health problems. And she It really got to her. And she said, you know, there's no reason. Look at us. We're a prosperous family. You know, we're very lucky. Everyone should have a chance to live a quality life. And that always stuck with her. And so, you know, the more people of limited means who succeed in the economy, getting a better job, getting higher wages, means a lot to her. And as I said, by most broad measures, this has been an extraordinary labor market while she's been Treasury Secretary. And it appears that her empathy has been with her, like you said, for her whole life. And she's always put it into her papers and into her policies. Do you think she's influenced other people in the economics world to think more broadly about this? I, I do. You know, she was just uh, at the UN. You know, there were the annual meetings where President Biden spoke and President Zelensky of, of Ukraine, and she was there for separate meetings. And they talked about, you know, helping poor countries that needed, you know, debt relief. And this, so that, you know, so we talked about poor people. Well, she, uh, on a larger scale, talks about poor countries a lot of poor people and how to help them. And so, again, she, I think, is changing, even at those meetings, kind of 
some of the priorities to talk about these issues of equality and helping everyone. And I think another example is when she was at the Fed, you know, it wasn't the Fed's responsibility to improve economic equality. That was not part of their, their mission. They're supposed to keep, you know, the economy healthy with inflation low and unemployment low. But nonetheless, she talked about it a lot. They had commissions at the Fed that looked at, you know, black unemployment. There's a, uh, a law that requires banks to lend in uh, disadvantaged communities, you know, where often they wouldn't do it because of the risk, but they're required to set aside a certain percentage of lending to help these disadvantaged communities. And she always made that a priority at the Fed. And I think she really influenced her successor, Jerome Powell, to have that same strong social conscience. You know, I've interviewed Powell a lot, and he he says a lot of the same things that, you know, yes, the Fed's responsibility is the, is the economy, but we have to really think about the people who are left behind and what we're going to do to help them. So I do think she was very influential that way. And obviously at Treasury, where she has, you know, created the first policy jobs that look at uh, inequality and, and the needs of minorities is another good example of how influential she's been. I suspect a lot of those positions will remain after she leaves. That is great news. <laughs> That's a great place for us to kind of wrap up, I think. I hope everybody buys a copy of your book and reads it because it is so heartening to know that somebody with the values and the communication skills and the intelligence of Jenna Yellen is in charge of our treasury and having a huge economic impact, Owen. The last question I want to ask you as we wrap up is, what surprised you most about her as you did your interviews for the book? Well, I'd say two things. She has a really good sense of humor. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think it. I mean, she seems so serious in her profession, but she could be very, very funny. And actually, one of the worst things I had to do in researching the book is read through the actual transcripts of these eight Fed meetings a year where they talk about setting economic policy. Each one is 200 pages. And it's, oh my God, you know, it's like... Torture, torture. But, you know, she lined it off and she would crack jokes and she would use analogies, you know, and tell, I mean, she, she was just delightful in how she would take the most mundane setting and topics and, and just bring, you know, some humor to it. And, and all her friends you know, say the same thing, that she's got a great sense of humor. The other thing I would say is that she's a real foodie. It has nothing to do with, you know, economics, but it says something about her personality. She, I think it's because her mother, who, by the way, was, was a, a homemaker and a former teacher, but I think created a lot of the, the characteristics that made Janet who she is, you know, by being a really competent, strong, intelligent woman. Her mother was big into going out to fancy restaurants and they'd go on cruises. And so she was exposed to a lot of good food. Well, when she was in graduate school, she and a friend 
went on a tour of France during the summer, and they vowed to hit like every Michelin three-star restaurant they could find. Sometimes they would settle for a two-star restaurant. But she loved good food, and she also is a good cook, and a lot of people say she made great meals. Now, of course, I've had lunch with her a couple times at the Treasury, and I think those are government meals. <laughs> I can't speak much to them, but... Well, you said in your book that she did learn to cook very well. She loved Julia Child, and she used to make big, fancy meals. But unfortunately, she doesn't have that much time to do that anymore. Although she rebelled when uh, she, for a fundraiser, when her son was in school to make all these zucchini breads to sell at a at a oh, That was shop. hysterical. That was such a funny anecdote. She was like, I'll just give you 20 bucks. You're selling my cakes for 20 bucks. I don't want to yeah. cook them. I'll just give you 20 bucks. But yeah, they didn't, I mean, she didn't want to say that. <laughs> right. I mean, why would people want to spend all their time, you know, baking when they can just give them money? Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, and it's been a delightful conversation. I really appreciate your time and your book. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sasha. I really, really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Money Conscious. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sasha Millstone. Sasha Millstone is the president and an investment advisor with the Millstone Evans Group, a registered investment advisor located in Colorado. All opinions expressed by Sasha and her podcast guests on this show are their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Millstone Evans Group. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Click on the Key Disclosures tab at millstoneevansgroup.com to review important information.